in my opinion, one of the the benefits of psychological targeting, I think it just has really opened people's eyes of how personal and intimate their data really is. Because that data has been around forever, right? And companies are using it. They don't need to translate it into a psychological profile to make super accurate predictions about what you're going to do in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think at, in the, at the moment that we put this label on it and we said, look, your Facebook profile tells us something about your sexual orientation or it tells us something about your political ideology. People suddenly felt like, oh, this is so much more intimate than I ever thought. I was just going to, I thought of it as something that I write on Facebook that I post and maybe something that I like, but it didn't feel as, as intimate. And I think as you're, as you're saying, that's, it's totally right. Is that like right now it feels a lot more like people are watching um, and just overstepping in, in many ways. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Program Life Podcast, where we want our listeners, guests, and myself to learn something new. Our guest on this episode today is Sandra Matz. Sandra is the Associate Professor of Business at Columbia Business School in New York. As a computational social scientist, she studies human behavior and preferences using a combination of big data analytics and traditional experimental methods. Her research aims at understanding how psychological characteristics influence real-life outcomes in a number of business-related domains, with the goal of helping businesses and individuals to make better decisions. This is a two-part episode where you are listening to the first part and we'll be discussing about psychological targeting and AI. In the second part, we'll be discussing about life and happiness. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. First of all, I would like to welcome you to the show, Sandra. And I would like to, first of all, thank you for taking your time, you know, for having this chat with me today. Absolutely. It's great to join. I've really been looking forward for this conversation today. And I'm glad that we were finally be able to connect and make this happen. Same here. Yeah. So I like to think that you are a very like su- successful person and you've done two TED Talks. Uh, one about can money buy happiness and another one, which is, which I would like to delve deeper in today about psychological targeting. Absolutely. Just to start off, I would like to ask what, uh, can you define what psychological targeting is? That's a, it's a great question. Um, so it has different components, at least the way that I think about it. Um, so at the, at the very core I would say that psychological targeting is trying to predict the psychology that could be personality, that could be other psychological dimensions such as intelligence, life satisfaction, um, personal values um, based on people's digital footprints. So instead of giving you a questionnaire, we look at your online behavior, we look at what you post on social media, we look at what you use your credit card for, how you use your smartphone and so on and so forth. And we use those traces, those digital footprints to then make predictions about who you are as a person when it comes to your psychology. So that's the first part is really trying to figure out who are you, not just in terms of your behavior, but in terms of your psychology. And then the second part is of psychological targeting um, is really this idea that we can then run interventions um, to shape your behavior or to influence your behavior. And they can also take many different forms. It could be I don't know if I know that if I can predict that you're an extrovert and this information could be useful to advertise products to you. Obviously, it could be useful to 
help you save more money is one of the things that we're looking into to help you keep you in college um, and so on and so forth. But it's really these two stages where we're trying to learn something about who you are by looking at your online behavior. And then we can potentially use that information to influence your behavior. Okay. Yeah. And psychological targeting, some people really think of it as like manipulative marketing without consent. What is your opinion on that? I think that heavily depends on how you use it, right? So we know from obviously all of the um, stuff that has been has been covered in the media that this can be used for manipulation, just like any other advertising tool, targeting can be used for manipulation. Like I don't need psychological targeting in a way to try and manipulate people, right? We have all these other tools at our disposal. It could be demographic targeting, could be behavioral targeting where we just look at what have people done in the past and use that type of information to to influence their behavior. So I think the tool itself is to some extent neutral, um, but it can be used for good and it can be used for, for bad. And as you said, I think the, the crux here is really like how do we think about um, like consent? How do we think about control? How do we think about transparency? And at the end of the day, how can we use it in a way that actually helps users see their see their intentions through rather than trying to get them to do something that they don't want to do. Yeah. And I definitely think like ethic ethics is a really big problem in this. And well, I want to also ask you, like, can you also give us like a just a sprinkle of some of your research that you have done and also provide like some color around some of the things that you've applied that research to? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's, I mean, it's a, it, it wasn't my, I mean, like now, as you, like you said at the beginning that I look like a successful person. This is like how life planned out, right? It's like uh, the the quote that life happens to you while you're busy making other plans. I think that's absolutely true. Um, it's not how I saw my career plan out when I started um, studying psychology for my, for my undergrad. Um, <laughs> but I think I just got really interested in this idea that we can learn something about people and their kind of psychological traits, what they do by looking at their behavior. If you think of psychology, it was always meant to be a behavioral science, um, but it was really difficult to capture people's actual behavior in daily life. It was difficult, like either we had to go back to questionnaires and ask them about their self-perception, self-description, or we just had to invite them to the lab and then they pressed a bunch of buttons, which is obviously not necessarily how the how the real world works. And so I got interested in this idea that we could learn something about people just by looking at the traces that they leave in the digital world pretty quickly. And uh, what I was particularly interested in is essentially applications, right? So there was like, when I started my PhD, there was like really early stages of we can predict someone's personality from their Facebook likes. And my question was immediately, okay, what is it that we can do with it? And like, what are the, the potential use cases for better or worse um, that we can now think about and consider now that we can actually predict people's psychology at scale and we don't need these questionnaires anymore. I mean, there's a couple of research questions that I've been interested in the, the last couple of years, like the very, like some of the early work looked in it really in the context of marketing. So let's say we can predict your um, personality by looking at your Facebook likes. So do we know that, for example, if you like, um, something like socializing or entourage, which is a TV series or um, Lady Gaga that you're more likely to be extroverted. Or if you like um, computers, anime, manga, 
And that's more like a sign that you're probably more of an introvert. And, and so based on these predictions, what we did is we just created different ads for, in, in our case, a beauty retailer. Um, and then we just tried to see, okay, if we tailor the content of those messages to people's psychology, so for extroverts, and this was a beauty retailer, so it's targeted at women. Like if we describe the beauty retailer as something that's exciting, something like a makeup that helps you um, have, a, have an incredible, enjoyable time with your friends, is that going to sell and more to extroverts versus having somewhat more reserved and quiet um, content and, and images that was just kind of showing a person in front of the mirror to tailor to introverts. And that what we, that's what we saw is that like really kind of just kind of trying to, it's the same product and just playing around with the, the way that we describe the product led to people purchasing more often if they were in one of these match conditions. So that was the early, early research that we did. And right now we're just trying to, for the last couple of years, my students and I have been um, trying to see how we can apply this for, for good, right? So I think most people are uh, familiar when it comes to psychological targeting with the Cambridge Analytica scandal. So the way that it was introduced was certainly a very negative use case coming back to your questions about ethics. Um, but I think there's many, many different uh, contexts and use cases that are actually really powerful. So we're kind of working on stuff where we try to help uh, people save more money. So those are people who have signal that they try to save, but it's so difficult because obviously uh, it's something that you benefit from in the future, but you have to put some money to the side um, today. So we kind of match people's saving goals um, to their psychology. So again, like if, if you're an extrovert, we would tell you save some money today so that you can go on like this fun and exciting adventure with your friends in the future. And if you're an introvert, we tell you save some money today so that you can make your home um, more comfortable or or whatever it is. Um, and it does seem to be the case that the same way that we can get people to spend more um, by playing into the needs and motivations, we can also get them to to save more. And I think that really showcases the power and to some extent the neutrality of something like psychological targeting is that it really depends on what your goal is and what your intention is um, with psychological targeting because the, the tool can be used to push people in, in really any direction. Yeah, and I guess um, what some people think is that the ethics of um, consumerism is the problem. And it's like mm -hmm. the difference between an admirer compared with like a stalker. We might want to be noticed at times, but we don't want to be watched and studied continue like um, all the time. So do you think yeah. that constant surveillance reduces us to like almost like lab rats or like, you know, just like constantly used? Yeah, I think that's a it's a wonderful analogy, right? So the idea that, and I find this to be true, I think in, in pretty much all of our research, usually what we do is we rely on people self-reporting their psychological traits, right? So we have to ask people questions um, and give them surveys to see how they see themselves in terms of their personality. And what we've learned over the years is that people love to learn about themselves. So they love to learn about themselves. They're happy to complete these questions if they get feedback. So there is this element that this like really fundamental human need to be understood, to be seen by others. But as you're saying, there is, um, if you think of it as in terms of the social contract, right? So we are happy to be seen by others. We're happy to give up some of our privacy because there's benefits um, that come with it, but it has limits. And I think the limits have been um, reached a while back. 
So we've been trying to advocate for this idea of, look, our data is so much more intimate than you think for like years now. Um, and that's, in my opinion, one of the, the benefits of psychological targeting. I think it just has really opened people's eyes of how personal and intimate their data really is. Because that data has been around forever, right? And companies are using it. They don't need to translate it into a psychological profile to make super accurate predictions about what you're going to do in the future. Mm -hmm. um, but I think in the, but the moment that we put this label on it and we said, look, your Facebook profile tells us something about your sexual orientation or it tells us something about your political ideology. People suddenly felt like, oh, this is so much more intimate than I ever thought. I was just going to, I thought of it as something that I, write on Facebook that I post and maybe something that I like, but it didn't feel as, as intimate. And I think as you're, as you're saying, that's, it's totally right. Is that like right now it feels a lot more like um, people are watching um, and just overstepping in, in many ways. Yeah. And um, one part of the psychological targeting that I kind of disagree is that like, um, I argue that we're human and, people are like way more complex than what they chose to like search up online. And you can't just claim to know someone more than they know themselves just through browsing. So um, there's a life that we have beyond just our internet activities. And so um, marketers sometimes like, like to get ahead of themselves by thinking that they can control and manipulate the average consumers. So the psychological marketing actually work because we actually have a whole new life behind like we it's almost like we have two faces one on the internet and one in real life i think it, it's a super interesting question right so like oftentimes the the sources that we use are social media and we all know that like we all make our, like, our lives look a little bit brighter and more positive than it probably is yeah and really like if you and i think that's the that's what i would love your listeners to to take away if there's like one thing that you take away from this from this podcast and um, is really that like most of the time what comes to mind immediately is social media facebook and, and what have you and those are to some extent curated but if you really take into account all of the traces that people leave um it's not just social media right so i can if i have access to your smartphones and a lot of apps do because they track your gps location and people are super happy to share their gps location with pretty much any app that they're that they're using yeah. and i can have a pretty good sense of what you're up to right so i can see exactly where do you live because that's where your phone is at home uh, at night and it's stationary um i can exactly know where you work i can know which places you visit if i kind of then also get access to your credit card um, it kind of, at some point, really gives me a much more holistic picture um, of what your life looks like. And I think social media is the aspect that people usually focus on. And whenever I give talks, there's always someone in the audience who's like, oh, but I don't use I don't use Facebook. I don't use social media. So I'm, I'm entirely safe. I'm like, well, that's <laughs> unfortunately not true because you're most likely using a credit card and like a smartphone. Mm -hmm. So it, there's really almost no escaping from this um, unless you want to live somewhere in the woods and, and grow your own. <laughs> which like again this is like a convenience trade-off um but i think what you're what you're saying is um in a way like right in that like what we do is like it's a rel it's a what i would call a pragmatic approximation of who you are right so even the the models of personality that we have they measure your kind of behavior thoughts and and feelings among along like five dimensions so it's like it obviously doesn't capture the entire complexity of 
your inner mental life, the way that you behave and the way that you potentially behave in different situations. So that's one of the things that I think we're going to see a lot more in the future is that we're not just saying that, well, you're an extrovert, um, but also like what is the context that you're, that you're currently in? And um, so in many ways, those models are approximations. But what I do think is that because they give us insights from all of these different angles, um, I do think they have a pretty um, good understanding, at least what your life looks like um, and what you potentially desire to be, right? So even, even if you think about the somewhat self-idealized versions that we put up on, on social media, if you think about marketing, and oftentimes what we're trying to do is actually play into people's desired selves. It's not necessarily, we're not necessarily advertising um, to who you are at the core and necessarily your true self. What we're trying to get to is what is it that you desire? Where is it that you want to go? And how do we actually kind of get you there? Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting question because it kind of gets at this, this core of, first of all, what is, what is marketing trying to do? Um, and it's almost like playing into your insecurities, right? So if you think you're too introverted and you want to become more extroverted, and that's what you're trying to kind of trying to do on, on Facebook, that's what marketing would, would play into. But it's certainly true that uh, none of these methods um, can capture exactly who you are. And they're still, like, even if they're somewhat accurate on, the, on an average level, on, on the individual level, they still make mistakes all the time, these predictive models. Yeah, and I guess one um, another point that I'm also interested in is also how there's this quote uh, from a book that I read called Essentialism by Greg McCohen, and he said that technology is a great servant but a poor master. So mm-hmm. there are only two industries industries that refer to customers as users, and that is one is the IT industry, and the other is illegal drug trades. So. Yeah. Um, a recent show that I watched called The Social Dilemma on Netflix is, and some people don't like the way that technology is heading. Um, and big companies actually, like what I discovered is they spent like tons of money on their apps to make them more addictive and attractive psychologically and therefore making technology take control over us and be our master in a way. So should people be scared of technology tracking us and what are the positive possibilities? Yeah, I think it's a it's a really um great question. And I would recommend what the social dilemma to to everybody, honestly. I think what it really nicely captures is just like the sheer amount um of data that is being collected on us and how like there's like very subtle ways or like subtle design choices that um those tech companies make to just get us more and more addicted. Um so I think it's it's mm-hmm. a great um great movie. I think so to some extent it kind of goes back to the the question that we we started with, right? It's like to some extent technology is is neutral. And I think what's happening right now, uh, which I think is highly problematic, is that most of it is happening behind our backs. Companies are trying their very best to conceal from us um, what's going on behind the scenes, make it as opaque as possible in terms of what data they are collecting and what they're using it for. Um, and I think that's what is what is really problematic about it. Because there's just so many cases where it could actually be really helpful. And if it's used in a way that helps us, again, see our intentions through. So we know that we're like our cognition um, is is highly limited when it comes to planning for the future, something like saving, exercising, um, eating healthily, right? There's many things that we really want to do. 
um, and we have the best intentions and we never really get there. So I think those are cases where kind of having a machine help us and kind of try and figure out, okay, wh when is the breaking point, right? So at what point in time is it very likely that I stop exercising or my phone picks up on the fact that I haven't exercised in a while? How can now like some smart AI help me kind of get back on track and, um, and exercise again? And um, so if we're using it in this case of, as you say, as a servant, right, it's saying, this is something that I want to do. And I know that it's going to be hard. So here's something that I put in place and that helps me do this. I think that is incredibly helpful. Um, but for that, again, you need user consent and not just user consent. You need to have like this. It's like I call it so it's essentially like a bi-directional relationship that is somewhat mutual. So you that as a company, the companies have to offer a service, that, service that's so good and so helpful that users really want to be part of it and want to donate their data because they think it, it's really helpful. Um, and there's different ways in which you could achieve that. But I think on some level, you need regulation, right? I don't see how we are going to assure that technology is used in a way that benefits people and is not used behind their backs in a way to just kind of, as you said, spying on them and trying to get mm -hmm. them to do things that they don't want to do. If we don't have at least a kind of <laughs> basic um, regulations in place that mandate something like um, privacy by design, control, transparency, um, and at least limit the use cases and to, to some extent. Yeah. Going back on to the thing you said about regulations is mm -hmm. um, what would you do or what, if you were in control, what would you do to, what regulations would you put in um, to control this so that technology is only benefiting us? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, I'm not sure if there's ever a way to have like technology purely benefit you, right? Because the, the mm -hmm. problem with technology, yeah. it's like super slow. Um, it's really hard to monitor, um, especially when it comes to AI. But I do think we need it as a signal. So I do think like as a society, we just have to send a signal to tech companies. Look, this is how we as a society want to deal with data and want to deal with technology. Um, and now like just kind of try and, and, and figure it out. Um, but it's like tech, in some extent, to some extent, regulation is difficult. Um, but what I would really want to see, um, and I think this is like it's been shown in so many other contexts, is the distinction between opt-in and opt-out. Right. So we know that organ donations, like if you have like an opt in, there's like 5% maybe of the population opts into the organ donation. Um, so you have a tiny fraction of the population who says, yeah, I'm willing to organize my, my organs. Um, if you, and there's a couple of countries who now have an opt out. So you automatically enroll, um, in the program. And if you don't want to be part of that, then you have to kind of show up to the, to an office and say that they, that you want to opt out. And then suddenly enrollment rates are, are like 95%, 90%, right? So it's like, it's a question of like, what is the default? So we know this from, from nudging, like the default really matters because if you want to change behavior, and this is a, a metaphor that one of my friends um, has suggested, which I, which I really like is like that um, changing behavior is like launching a rocket into space. What you need is motivation, um, but you also need to reduce friction. And that's, mm -hmm. that's like, if we think about privacy, right? So people say that they care about privacy um, and we know that most of the time their behaviors just don't correspond to this statement. 
Um, so we all say we care about privacy, but then nobody checks their privacy or changes their privacy settings. Um, people are not using VPNs. It's like there's so many things that people could do if they really cared about privacy. So in, in my opinion, like what you really have to do is just make it easy for users. I don't think we can expect this to fully grasp and understand what is really possible with technology because it's moving so fast. So it's really this idea of like privacy by design, changing the default options and reducing barriers for people to um, to be able to care about and live their, their privacy intentions. So that I think is on the regulation side. There's like an entire additional side when it comes to technology, I think. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And um, the real question that many people wonder is that at what point do the systems stop needing um, humans to facilitate their goals as in to like what extent where um, systems can predict these psychological traits and is advanced enough to even suggest how we can attract people to certain markets and stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think that's a, I think it's a, it's a, it's a vision that scares people. Um, and I mm. should extent rightfully, right. Cause just like there's certain things that might be beneficial on average, but it doesn't mean that it's the best for every person. So, and, and I think this is like, it's a debate that has to happen on a societal level. And um, so if you think about obesity, for example, or eating healthily, to some extent, that's not just an issue of an individual, right? So if you're obese, that increases your risk of like all kind of health issues um, and premature death. But it also kind of creates a ton of cost for, for society. So if there was something like some kind of technology that helped people across the board, even without their opt-in, to kind of be healthier and exercise more potentially um, and, and have a lower risk of obesity, question is, should, should we be doing this? Because it's something that benefits individual, also benefits society, but it doesn't mean that everybody wants to live their life that way. Um, and I do think that like, it's, it's like this combination of, is AI really good at predicting what you would want to do without you noticing or realizing that yourself? And then also, if there's certain things that you want to do, um, but that a society thinks is really, is really terrible and we don't want to see, is there a way that we would still, still use AI? And it's, it's a tough question because um, it plays into so many different aspects of life, right? Like, do you have the liberty um, to, to live your life the way that you want to? And it's like almost a social contract again, right? We give up certain liberties and freedom and privacy for a society to, to function better. And what is, it's like a very fine line to walk. Yeah. And linking back to when you said about the Cambridge Analytica and Linking back to the 2016 election, um, there's a book that I read called The Elephant in the Brain. And I just interviewed the author like a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And he suggests that we are all intrinsically selfish and we always follow our tribe when it comes to voting in elections. And mm -hmm. as in our motive to elect someone as president is to help our side, as in we follow what our friends and family vote for. So mm -hmm. my question is, what extent, to what extent does psychological targeting actually make a difference in events like such as election? Yeah, I think I think it's a great question. I mean, that's one of the topics that I um, recently became a lot more interested in in the context of like political polarization and shared reality, which is this concept of us kind of having this innate human motive to create shared reality with the people around us. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the, and it's a super interesting research, like essentially showing that 
you are more likely to vote in line with your own party than in line with your own values, right? Yeah. So it's like it's almost this contradiction where it's not necessarily selfish um, because to some extent you're overriding your own values, your own desires, your own preferences, just to be part of it. Mm-hmm. And just to have the sense of, oh, like we're all on the same page when it comes to how we see the world, at least within our own own tribe. Um, and that, that's what it's interesting because that's what, like the way that um, they usually phrase it is like what brings us together, but also tears us apart, right? The idea that we want to belong to our group, but also because we belong to this in-group and we have the shared reality with a parts of population, we are contrasting ourselves to, to people on the other side. And I think when it comes to... Um, advertising there's like there's there's certainly no way that you could ever kind of turn a super convinced hillary clinton voter into a suddenly like a trump supporter like a biden voter into a trump supporter yeah. I think that's that's just not the not the question and um, do i think that just like having advertising for people who are kind of somewhat undecided don't have any sense i think that potentially makes a difference, right? Because to some extent, it's just like, what is top of mind um, on election day, the days before election day? So it's not necessarily changing like really fundamental attitudes and beliefs of people. It's just kind of trying to get people to see one side of the story or just kind of trying to bring something to make something top of mind that they otherwise wouldn't have thought of. Um, but there's also like a ton of a ton of research which shows that like advertising to some extent is effective. And there's actually like arguments to both sides. I recently listened to a talk that I felt was interesting that was arguing that actually advertising to some extent is more helpful for um, less popular candidates and for the um, incoming candidates, right? Because like the, the existing, like at least in the US, the president is established, they have a stage, they are reaching people. And um, so it's much harder for the incoming um, or the challenger to to get like the word out and talk to people and get them aware of what they're what they're standing for. So I think there's like this interesting um, trade off that we have in terms of if we shut down all political advertising, are we actually hurting the wrong people? And that would be people who are have less like money to run TV ads, for example, or who have mm-hmm. less um uh, less visibility uh, otherwise but uh, like if it when it comes to voting we still know that our like personal relationships like if if you text a friend and tell them you should go out on election day and, and vote that's so much more powerful than, than any other yeah. we